I'd like for you to turn to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, verses 31 and 32. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. In your mind, I want you to go with me down the cobblestone streets of the old city of Jerusalem. It's dark, and we'll have to wind our way in the darkness to a little house over near the temple. And outside that house are winding or outside stairs that make their way up to an upper room. And we'll stand outside the door of that room and listen as Jesus meets for the last time with His disciples on earth. It's a strange night and strange things are happening in the city, a night of mystery. And the tension inside that room you can cut with a knife. Every eye is riveted on Jesus, and there is a kind of a hush that comes on that group as Jesus begins to speak directly to Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you singular, that your faith, singular, may not fail, and you individually, when you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There are two great themes in these two verses. One is fearful and frightening. The other is encouraging. It's frightening in the sense that a person can love Jesus and have the purest motive in following Him and fail Him. I believe that Peter was absolutely sincere when he told Jesus that night, I'm ready to die for you. I'll go to the death for you. And when Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And Peter said, no, Lord, not I. Maybe these men, but not I. And I think he really meant that. I think he was absolutely sincere when he said, I will follow you to the death. This man had given up everything to follow Jesus. He truly loved him. And a person can follow in intimate fellowship with Jesus for three years, be be at his side to see everything he did, to marvel at the strength and love of this man and one moment fail him. That's a frightening thing. Yes, even you, Peter, even you can fail me. Even you are subject to failure. It is encouraging in the sense that Jesus said that even though you fail, you can recover. You have a second chance. After you have turned The suggestion is that even when one fails Jesus, he can turn again and will turn again, and his life can be useful and fruitful. For Jesus was not only prophesying this man's failure, he was prophesying his return, his recovery, and that is encouraging. And some of the most instructive things about the devil and his subtlety the sovereignty of our Lord, the intercession of Christ are found in these words. 
And so I want us to examine this passage, realizing how serious this moment is, not only here in this place, but here in this place, in this upper room, indicated by the fact that Jesus used His word, His name twice, Simon, Simon. And then that word that carries with it ringing bells and a siren and flashing lights. Behold, Simon, this is the most serious moment of your life. I want you to listen what I have to say. There's a basic proposition in this text. The basic proposition is that Satan desires you. If you have a, if you have a King James, it's that word, desire. He demands permission, says the New American Standard. But the fact is that Satan has an intense interest in your life. Graduates, you are the focus of our thoughts and the interest of not only your family, but this church. But there is one who has a greater interest in you than we. It's the devil himself. And Peter says later in the fifth chapter of his epistle, Be sober, be vigilant, for the, for the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour. You remember the first chapter of the book of Job? Satan just appears in the council room of God. And God asked Satan, Satan, where do you come from? He said, from walking, roaming about in the earth and walking to and fro on it. And the question that God is about to ask, Satan suggests what he was doing when he was roaming about on the earth, walking to and fro on it. He asked him, have you considered my servant Job? Suggesting that that's what he was doing while he was walking about on the earth, walking around to and fro. He was considering us, considering those. And then the devil's response implies something significant. The devil said immediately, he said, Well, if you took down that hedge around Job, if you took down the hedge around that man and his family, I would, I would cause him to curse you in a moment. Now, how did the devil know there was a hedge around Job? Well, I suggest to you that he'd come up against it again and again as he considered him. And I have a strong conviction that he knew every inch of that hedge, every place of vulnerability, every weak place, every place where he might invade his life and ours. He has an intense interest in us. And I'm convinced that, God, that Satan had a large dossier, a large file on Brother Job and upon us. He knows every place of vulnerability, every weak spot. He has an intense interest in you. And he always stalks before he strikes. And I suggest that he had stalked Simon Peter for all of these years. He had stalked him. And he was there with us. He is there with us on that rooftop, listening to that conversation going on in that upper room. And he knew everything about Simon. He had stalked him, and now he's about ready to strike. Now, there are three implications in, here, in this. The first is that Satan strikes simultaneous or immediately prior to a crisis. Now, Peter didn't know that he was about to encounter the most critical moment in his life. He didn't know he was, there was a crisis here. He didn't know that. 
He knew there was something strange going on, and he knew that something dark and dismal was happening around him. He didn't understand it all. He should have. He could have, but he didn't want to really think about it. In a moment, we're going to see him, in a little while we see him out sleeping in the garden while Jesus claws the ground in agony, such agony that he almost dies. Simon wasn't aware that a crisis was impending, but the devil was. Around the corner of your life tomorrow may loom a crisis. It may be a divorce impending. It may be a bad lab report. It may be a failure in business, the loss of a job. It may be the crisis of a teenager gone wrong. Young people, you're facing the most critical time in your life. And you'll be without your parents and your church and those who've influenced you as you choose your college and whom you will marry and what kind of work you'll do. And you'll go to college and you'll be confronted with an intellectual challenge the likes of which you've never encountered. You'll do that alone. And your faith will come under the assault of some intellectualism. And you'll have the peer pressure, peer pressure like you have never experienced before. Around the corner of the day that looms before you is the most critical moment of your life. You're facing a crisis. And he always strikes at a crisis moment. And he always strikes at our strong point. I must say quickly at what we think is our strong point was really our weakest point. What was Simon Peter's strong point? He would say it was his courage. This guy was afraid of nothing. I mean, not even walking on water. This guy would do anything. When you read the Gospels, you're confronted with a man who had courage. He was a man's man. He was fearless. And I say again that in that upper room, he absolutely had no belief that he would ever falter, that he would ever be weak, because if there was something about this man you could count on was his courage, his boldness. He was a man's man. And so it was at that point of his strength that the devil struck. Now why is it that he strikes at our strong point? It's because at the point where we feel the most invincible, where we feel the strongest. That's the place where we lack dependence. And we're most often feeling, I can handle this myself. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. You're at a place of vulnerability. I mean, graduating from college? Wow. High school? And I don't need parents. I don't need preachers. Man, I'm 19, I'm 22, I'm on my own. It's at the point of one's strength he strikes. And so Paul says, He that standeth, beware, take heed, lest he fall. Hear me now. He always strikes strategic people. Now I indicated that when he spoke, Jesus spoke, he said, Satan, the uh, Peter, Simon, Satan desires to have you, and it's plural. And he's talking about the whole group. Satan wants to, dis, to sift all of you, but I have prayed for you specifically. I've prayed for you individually that your faith failed not. Now, why would he single out Simon from all the rest to say, I'm praying for you? is because Simon was the most strategic, the most important person in the group. No question about the fact that how Simon went, the disciples went. No question about the fact that Simon most represented 
what these disciples were about. And Satan was going to affect the most strategic person in the group. He always does. I was visiting with a man not long ago and I shared with him the Christian faith. And he brought it up. It's been done many times to me. He said, well, I want to be a Christian, but if it weren't for old so-and-so. And I've always noticed that they always mention, not some of the sorriest people in the world, they always mention some of the best, some of the most strategic people within the church. If it weren't for him, what he did, always pointing it out. My answer to that person was this, yes, I understood, I've understood since I was 18-year-old preacher that some of the people you put the most confidence in some of the most critical people within the structure of the church that most represent what the Christian faith is about. Those people often fail, and their failure bring, causes the greatest damage. Why is that so? Because those are the people that the devil goes after. Graduates, you're the most important people in this room today. And what happens in your life is so important. You're the most strategic people alive. And if this world is ever going to be turned and helped and strengthened and saved, it'll be because of you. Now there's an explanation. I want to spend the rest of the time on this. Now listen carefully. Jesus said to Simon, Satan desires to sift you, but I've prayed for you. The implication, the explanation is that Simon Peter should know that Satan does not have unlimited access to Peter. Whatever power Satan has in a person's life is the power God permits him to have. And no Nothing the devil can ever do in a person's life. No power does he ever have on anyone's life except the power that God permits him. So when Satan said to God in the councils there in Job, in Job 1, God said to Satan, okay, you can touch his possessions, but you can't touch his life. You don't have unlimited uh, access to anybody. That's what God was saying to Satan. So whatever power Satan has, it's the power that God permits. A number of years ago, there was a heresy in the country called dualism. Now, dualism is the belief that there are two great powers, good and evil, and they're equal. Good cannot overcome evil, and evil cannot overcome good, and they're kind of at a standoff. It's called dualism. It's a heresy. Evil and good are not equal powers. All powers given to God. And some people believe that the devil can do some things that God cannot prevent. He can do nothing that God cannot prevent. And when Pilate spoke to Jesus, he said to Jesus, You better speak up, man, because I have power over you. And Jesus said to Pilate, You don't have any power over me except what the Father grants you. Now get that. He said, Pilate, you don't even have the power to crucify me unless God permits you to have it. So the question is, listen to me, why would God ever permit 
Satan to, to sift us. Why would God permit Satan permission, give him permission to sift us? And the answer is implied in the text. The answer is in order to perfect us for ministry to others. There's some suffering that you, you're in your life you'll never understand. And there's some sifting that comes in your life that you'll never be able to explain. And the only fruit of the sifting of your life you'll see in the lives of others perhaps. And so Jesus was saying to Simon, in essence, Simon, I'm going to permit. Remember, God doesn't cause these things to happen at all times. But I'm going to permit Satan to sift you because in that sifting, you'll get equipment for the turning of others. In that sifting, you'll be perfected for ministry. Peter, I've been trying to teach you three years some things that you've not learned, so I'm going to turn you over to another teacher so you can learn from him. For ultimately, listen, the bottom line, graduate, the, the bottom line, friend, is this. What is life preparing me for? And why am I going through these experiences in life? Well, I can answer that question for you in order that you might have equipment for ministry to others. And if you trace the life of Simon Peter on out, you'll discover that everything he did and everything he wrote about relates to this sifting that came when he denied his Lord. If you've not come in this past week to understand that these are critical days through which we're passing, nothing will ever convince you. This world's on fire. I read an editorial yesterday by a man named Murchison in the Dallas Morning News. He, he lives in Los Angeles. He said the, the lid was taken off of the abyss this week and we were allowed to look inside. This is, these are frightening days. Terrifying days. And I saw them interviewed. CNN went down the streets interviewing these people who were standing there watching this town go down, their community burn. And they interviewed a little black boy. He was about 10 years old. I wrote it down. Little black boy, just cute as a bug. And they asked him his thoughts, and this is what he said. We're going to have to wait a long time to get our memories back. You know what he was saying? He's saying we're going to have a long time forgetting this. What he was saying is 10 years I've lived in this community and I've enjoyed it. I've had a good time. It's been wonderful. It's going to take a long time to ever convince me that it'll ever be good again. That's what he was saying. This is your generation, graduates. Save it. I don't know whether you saw Time Magazine's cover picture a few months ago or not, but the cover picture of Time Magazine was a picture of George Washington with tears flowing down his face. And the meaning of that picture was this. If George Washington were alive today, he'd weep over this country. If George Washington were alive today, he'd weep over the quality, the character of the leadership of this country. We're in trouble, folks. And you ask me, can I do anything? Can I make a difference? Yes, you can. And it's not just time for young people to understand 
that they need to save their generation. But it's time for us to clean out our houses and our lives. It's time as parents to begin to do some positive things with our children, to pray with them and to teach them. And it's time for us to say, enough is enough. And it's time for us to get involved in the political, in the body politic. And it's time for us to make a contribution to the public education of this country and to the spiritual growth of this country. It's time for us to stop letting preachers do it. It's time for us to save our world or forever see it lost. And there are three things that are happening here that are going to enable Simon Peter to turn others. One is that he's getting sight, he's getting vision. It's suggestive here. Now watch this. Highly suggestive when Jesus calls Simon, Simon. He uses the old name. You remember when he met Simon? He said, you know, your name is Simon, but I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to be Cephas. Simon means little pebble. Cephas means mighty foundation stone. He goes back to the original name. And what he's saying to Simon is this. Simon, you need to see you're not what you ought to be. You're not what I dreamed you to be. You're not what I called you to be. You're not what I planned you to be. You're still that same weak, vacillating man I met three years ago. It's time for you to discover that you're not what you ought to be. I say to you, it's time for us to evaluate, are we the people God has called us to be? Can we say that we're the people God saved us to be when we act the way we act and talk the way we talk and do what we do? It's time for us to see the potential, sight, vision of what we were meant to be. And I brought home a souvenir from the Grand Ole Opry. Besides ringing ears, I brought home another souvenir. My daughter... Um, my, my unmarried daughter lives in West Texas. She loves Barbara Mandrell. Y'all know her, don't you, Barbara? <laughs> interesting, story about, interesting story about Barbara Mandrell. When she was a little girl, she went to the Grand Ole Opry for the first time, and she leaned over and said to her daddy about halfway through that, I don't belong out here. I belong up there. And if you'll help me, Daddy, and sponsor me and support me, one of these days I'll be up there. Um, can I say it like this? Young people, you don't belong out there. You belong out there where this world burns down. And the world, Paul said, waits with eager longing for the coming of the sons of God. You need to see that's you that the world waits for. And there's not only sight, but there's sacrifice. Now, I don't know what's happening to Simon Peter, but I know this much. God's getting him ready. Jesus is getting him ready for a price he's going to have to pay. For you trace his life from here on out. Tradition has it he was crucified upside down. What happens after this? You remember when Simon came to Jesus, he said to Jesus one day, he said, you know, we've left all to follow you. What are we going to get out of it? And Jesus is telling him in this story, you're going to get out of it suffering and sacrifice. And I have a feeling that what we do when we get up in the morning, 
How much can I make today? How much can I gain today? How much can I get today? How much can I save today? I'm here to challenge you to get up in the morning. When you walk across that stage, get that diploma. Let this question come to your mind. What can I give to this world? As Ignatius Loyola once said, Lord, help us to serve you in a way worthy of you. Help us to give without counting the cost. Help us to fight without heeding the wounds. Help us to toil without seeking rest. Help us to work without asking for gain or reward, except the reward of doing your will. And so Meredith Wilson wrote, The Music Man. There are bells in the hills, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all until there was you. And there were birds in the air, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all until there was you. And there was music and wonderful roses, I'm told, and sweet, fragrant meadows of dawn and dew. And there was love, but I never heard it singing. No, I never heard it at all till there was you. And there'll be some people who will never know what Jesus is like unless there's a you. And there are some who will never hear the ringing music of the gospel that God loves people and He makes a difference in their life if they don't hear it from you. But I don't know anybody in this world who has ever made a difference without paying a price. There is one last thought. Sight, sacrifice, and standard. People are so disillusioned. You notice that, I guess. I mean, I'm no prophet of doom. I've been accused of being a prophet of doom. My Sunday school class, you're a prophet of doom. <laughs> In fun, I hope. Have you noticed how disillusioned people are? To whom can you look and say, I want to be like him? I want to be like her? And people look at the political leaders of our country and they're so disillusioned. And they look in the pulpits of our churches and they're so disillusioned. And they look at the leadership that exists in our time and they're so disillusioned, they're so discouraged. And there is this seething cauldron of unhappiness and unrest that exists in our time. It may, be, it may not be different, but it seems different to me because people are looking for some standard and find none. And one sociologist said, we're no longer trying to find out if we're from the left of center or from the right of center. He said, we don't even have a center. We don't have a standard. We don't have somebody that we can look to and say, that's the person I want to be like, unless that person is you. A standard. Somebody I can hang my faith on. I beg you to be that person. I beg you to get out in that, in that market arena, that marketplace, and be that person that that folks would say, that's the guy I want to be like. That's the lady I want to be like. I, want, I beg you to get into that university where your next step is and live in that dorm and be in that 
that, those organizations so that people can come into that college and say, I want you to meet him, I want you to meet her. That's the person you need to be like. And so a chaplain went out on the battlefield and there was a mortally wounded comrade there and he, he went to him, he said, can I read you some scripture? You're, you're, you're injured, let me read. The guy said, I'm thirsty, can you give me a drink? So he got his canteen, he gave him some water. He said, now can I read from God's word? It's so important that you hear God's word. The man said, could you, could you lift my head? So he took off his his overcoat and made a pillow and put it under his head. Then he opened his scripture and began to read. The dying soldier interrupted him and said, I'm so cold. And so he took off his undercoat and put it around him, wrapped him up. By that time he'd gotten the message. He knew that he wasn't in the mood of hearing scripture. So he put his New Testament back in his pocket. He turned to leave to get him help. As he started to leave, the dying soldier said, Sir, come here. If there's anything in that book that makes a man do what you just did for me, I want to hear about it. These are days when people need to live the kind of life that would point to this book. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is with the deepest emotion that we come to this day and realize that we've been to this day time and time again. But every time we come, the hour gets more urgent and the day gets more critical. And I thank you for the gifts of these young men and women are graduating from our great university and our high school. And I pray your blessing upon them. Call them, Lord, to be men and women others could trust and follow out of the darkness. And now I pray, Father, for this moment of invitation that Jesus might be glorified and honored for I ask it in His name. Now there are three invitations. Now hear me carefully. I've tried to blend this idea into a sermon, not just for students. I hope you've been able to sense that it has meant more for more than just students. There might be somebody in this room today who has never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus Christ. In the early service, there was a young girl from the Methodist church. She's being confirmed. What that means, she's going through the instructions, what it means to be a Christian. And part of that responsibility was to come to a Baptist church. And we talked about, as I visited with her just before the service, that you know, we do the same thing. We give our heart to Jesus Christ. We follow Him. We trust Him and we follow Him with the knowledge that we have and the faith that we have. Just here, we just give an invitation for you to come and declare your faith in Christ. I want you to do that if you've never done it. God wants you to be saved this morning. Would you come place your faith in Jesus Christ? 
Maybe you need to come publicly because you've already prayed to receive Him. Or you need to come and join our church because you want to be a part of a corporate body of believers. I believe that Christ's answer to the world is in the church. Maybe you need to come today and say, Pastor, I just need to recommit my life to Christ and re-up my pledge to follow Him. Our choir will lead us, will sing, and they'll sing through. After they've sung a couple of times, we'll switch to the old-time favorite, just as I am. I hope that God leads you to come and that you'll come. While we stand to sing, we invite you.